You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. Hello, everyone. So I recorded a phone call that I had with Worth Ray, who's the Chief Economist and Global Market Strategist at STA Wealth Management. He's also the author of For What It's Worth, which is a global macro newsletter, as well as the co-author of A Great Loop Forward, which he wrote with John Malden. I had the most fascinating conversation with him. It went on for a very long time. And so what I've done is I've split it into two because it um, took a lot of editing, well over two hours worth of conversation. So today I've got a number of topics that are in the first segment of this conversation, and I hope that you'll enjoy them. The conversation starts with me describing some of the things that I'm focused on, which Worth had asked me about, and then moves on to a number of other topics. Right now, I'm focused on wealth preservation. And my strategy, if you will, is that you've got a marketplace which is very, very difficult to participate in because everything is priced off of a benchmark, and that benchmark is mispriced. So if you think about every asset assets in the world, whether it be equities, bonds, real estate, I mean, literally everything is priced to a certain extent off the 10-year and, and go global. It's, it's priced off of a set of benchmarks, could be median of you know, various treasuries, you know, 10, 5, 10, 30-year, whatever. But to a certain extent, that is how the world's assets are priced. And those underlying markets, the, the bond market, is the most manipulated that I've ever seen and that I've ever researched. You know, it's, it's a topic that we all talk about at length, trying to figure it out, right? So in that environment, it doesn't make a lot of sense for me, for example, to go into, I think Raul might be correct in that the bonds keep rallying, right? Just because you've got a there's a differential between European and Japanese bonds and certainly a lot of Europe's now negative and then it's priced in Euro and then you contrast that to the US, you go, well, shit, I'd much rather own US bonds than I would Euro, I'd rather, you know, sell a Euro and buy US T-bills or, or, or treasuries, mm-hmm. which, you know, again, you're making a decision based on relativity. You're going, well, relative to that, this looks good. And I think there's a big danger in that. I think that that you kind of, you're looking at the trees and not considering the forest. It's like the forest's on fire and you're in the trees and you're in a little area and you're going, well, this bit's not on fire. So we'll go here. But the whole forest's on fire, you know? So it's like you need to move to another forest or just get out of the forest and, and, and just mm-hmm. you know, burn. That's kind of how I think about things. So the flip side of that is there is quite a lot of asymmetry in parts of this market. So, in the bond market, for example, we've just been buying um, Eurobill puts and, and we're paying very, very little for it, right? Because there's this expectation that rates are going to continue to be low or negative into the future. And they may be correct, but the cost of taking the other side is probably the lowest it's ever been. So I'm looking for, for opportunities like that where there is a lot of asymmetry and I, I probably only need one of 10 to work out because typically when these things go, then they really go. You know, if I kind of go back and you look at, say, you know, the, the Swiss franc peg, which broke, and you look at 
the renminbi even. I look for that sort of asymmetry, like the dollar index was a good one in 2014 when my buddy Brad and I looked at it and he, he actually just pulled it up because he just, he looked at vol and vol was under 3%. And he was like, hey, Chris, look at this. And I'm like, well, that doesn't, that's an anomaly. Like, why is that? And then, you know, started digging into it and then it started making sense. I'm like, we have to take that trade. Literally two weeks later, broke the seven year trend. So it was, mm-hmm. it, was, it was kind of lucky that we found it, but it wasn't so much lucky. It was that we're looking for those sorts of anomalies. And so the cost of going along the dollar index at the time was just so absurdly low that even if you got it wrong, it wasn't going to kill you, right? No. Um, Nobody gets that, man. I mean, the, the way that it's just set up is that there are, there are trades set up where you're either not going to lose much because consensus is already priced in or consensus is wrong, maybe dramatically so, and then you make a lot. That's, that's it. And, you know, when I look across, you know, look, your standard wealth allocation is meant to be, you know, 60-40 roughly. Let's call it that, right? 60 equities, 40% bonds. And that just doesn't make a lot of sense to me right now. Again, everything's priced off of these benchmarks, which were just screwy. You know, for me, I, I look at it and I go, you know what, I just, I'd much rather just be in cash and then take small percentage points and and put them onto these asymmetric types of opportunities factor in that I'm going to lose five points every year. Right. Mm -hmm. And if I want to go further down that risk curve, I maybe, you know, maybe put more of my portfolio into those kind of deals. Um, But the asymmetry that exists in them means that I could substantially outperform the market. If any of these, black swan almost type and they're not even black swans now they're just like they're guaranteed to happen it's just a matter of timing yeah i kind of feel like we've never had this situation or this opportunity ever before and it feels wrong to not participate in it just because the pricing of it is just so so low so so that's that's a big part of the kind of overall strategy the other thing in terms of major trends that I'm interested in is, is like annuity type businesses. And that's sort of more in the private space. So I'm working with um, my partner up in, in Thailand, who was actually my ex neighbor. His, his background very quickly is he ran Sheikh Mohammed's private, private equity fund. Um, anyways, super, super smart guy, sharp as bloody tech. And we've just become friends for the last five, six years, um, fast trends. And so what we're looking at doing is things like demographics, right? There's about four large retirement resort facilities that exist or are being built. There's two being, there's actually there's three in existence and there's two more being built. This is not an anomaly, right? This is, we're seeing the same thing taking place in Chiang Mai, in Thailand, all across the world. So, and those businesses- That's actually something, by the way, that should be supported by- by automation and a lot of the new technology to basically have people deciding where they want to live, where they want to vacation, you know, where they want to retire because you, you just don't need the world to be organized the way it was traditionally. I like annuities. Like if you think about the insurance business, it's awesome because it's just math, right? It's just, Mm -hmm. you just have these continuous annuities. And one of the problems that you've got with private equity, short call it venture capital is liquidity, right? You get into some deal and you, you're always waiting for a sale. And, and the business, the guys running the business might not want to sell because the business is doing well. 
but his backers are like, you've got to sell because I want to get paid. So you, and that's always existed in that space. And that's even more prevalent in the, in the sort of tech space where guys are going for growth as opposed to revenues, right? They're trying to get market share. I mean, take a company like Amazon, right? I mean, huge. I mean, they're liquid now, but let's just pretend that they were still a private company. Like they don't make any money. Mm-hmm. I mean, Tesla, another one, right? If, they, if these companies were not public, they weren't listed, and you were an investor in them, like how do you get out? And you realize that you, they can't pay you dividends because they're not making any money. It's just a real problem. It's cash flow. I mean, <laughs> it's basically it. So, so that's a big focus that I'm working on there on that side. And um, But yeah, so anyway, I've just been talking. That's, that's pretty much... That's very cool, though. I'm, I'm really, really excited to hear some of that. It's, it's, it's pretty badass. You know, I've just been very lucky with. I'm not anything special. I got very lucky. Then I learned um, some really great lessons on risk management, and I've managed to do pretty well for myself. It's probably not the smartest way to do things. Like if someone else said to me, oh, you know, how would I go about doing this? I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend at all what I've done because if I'd done it a different way, I could have become a lot more wealthy, quite frankly. But it just, you know, you just got to work with your own personality, right? And be consistent and congruent with that. And so I've never really wanted to take on that burden of managing other people's money and getting phone calls going, well, you're down 10% this month and what's going on? Yeah. It's just, yeah. Because um, I've got plenty of friends in the space and that's, you know, <laughs> as I'm sure you do. And that's it's something that they've all got to deal with. And people have got a very short, time frame uh, you know and i think it's been shortened um with the news cycle and with technology you know people don't even read something that's two thousand words anymore if it's like not 500 it's too long won't read Um, Uh and so with that psychology comes this need or desire for shorter term gratification so if you're a money manager you're dealing with that shifted psychology you know, i talked to some elderly guys who are now in the sort of 80s manage money and their take is that you know 50 years ago they had flexibility of time people's had a longer time horizon than they do today or that, that seems to be the perception mm-hmm. um, you know when, when people have that short time horizon it pushes them into a different risk profile which you have to do if you're going to look for returns on that shorter time frame right yeah. If you think about the bond market, people are buying bonds. Like I just looked at emerging market bonds and in the last two months in EM bonds, about 1.2 billion has gone in at an average of 3.8% yield. And I look at that and I'm like, man, these are not any, they're just as risky as they always were. Maybe yeah. you like, maybe in this environment, even more so, right? And you're getting 3.8%. Then if I look about it and go, okay, we're potentially halfway through a dollar bull market. It's bumping and grinding along there at the moment. Maybe it breaks to the low and it goes the other way. But you know what? For me, it's like 50-50 right now. And so if it breaks and it goes higher, the dollar rallies, those emerging market bonds, unless you're hedged, and then you you yeah. the cost of hedge. It's like three point eight percent. You get wiped out in a week. So yeah, especially uh, since you're already you've already built up to that stress point. Mm. You know, it's not like it's not like um, 
you know, if you go back to 2014 and you started kind of ramping up and putting the squeeze on, like they've already gotten squeezed pretty hard. Much more is it's, it's default time. I looked at a report from JP Morgan Europe. I think it was the average emerging market bonds over like the last decade or something was, and don't quote me on this, it was like something like 50 billion or something. And this year, 2016, it's going to be 180. Oh yeah, it's insane. I just think people have been pushed further and further down the risk curve in order to try and get returns. And it just feels like it's, you're just going the wrong way. Yeah. Like the consensus belief in the US is that we're going to see a strong Q2. That seems to be the case. I kind of feel like we're probably closer to a recession. And it's like, even, even if we had a strong Q2 in earnings, it's, it looks like it's already priced. So that's, I mean, that's a really interesting question, though, because you're clearly in a growth slowdown. However, we didn't get the kind of seasonal bounce um, that, uh, that you would have expected so much in Q2, although the, a lot of the data, although there's some standout kind of worrying things, a lot of the data looks a little better in Q3. That actually makes me more concerned, not less, um, because growth is, you know, the U.S. economy is still too fragile to handle it. If growth kind of re-accelerates, then the dollar story really comes back in earnest. And that's, a, that's a, an environment where you start to unleash some pretty powerful shocks around the world. And I think we're too weak to be able to, to just power through that. So I actually get more worried about a pickup rather than just kind of a slow, sustained grind. Because I don't see, I don't see all the elements in place yet for recession. I mean, you could roll over, and it would be a shallow kind of two thousand two thousand one recession. But to get something, you know, where you really fall hard, we don't we don't have the conditions yet. We do have the conditions for a big shock. That's an interesting point you make. So with that, I'm just going to extrapolate that out. What that could potentially mean is a shift in terms of. A concern about deflation to one of inflation. Yeah. If, if, you, if you look at the bond market, that's not priced at all. It's weird because, I mean, let me put it this way. Um, I don't know that like Julian Brigden has been talking about this a little bit, but we've had, we've had a tremendous amount of policy intervention year to date. You know, um, I, I just call it the Shanghai Accord because before the G20, there's a lot of people asking me, hey, would this happen? I know Bank of America and Deutsche were saying, saying that there needed to be kind of an agreement to weaken the dollar and support the B and do some of those things. I didn't think it was going to happen because of, of the politics of, of just doing it publicly seemed ludicrous. And I didn't really, really think that the support was there to do something behind the scenes. But by mid-March, it was pretty clear. And we've seen this pretty aggressive reflation year to date. A lot of it driven by, you know, this weaker and then range bound dollar. And, uh, and then, you know, this global scramble for yield, which can push asset prices up as long as the dollar is contained. Um, and, and so it's been, it's been wild, but you know, you had this big fall in oil prices last year driven by the stronger dollar and you had, you know, a bitter recovery this year. It was rolling over again because you still have a glutton supply, but now on OPEC kind of freeze, expectations you have it running up again and what's interesting is if oil prices were to stay around this area or even a little weaker and it stayed there through the end of the year 
year-over-year CPI in the United States would increase substantially. So I don't think it's real self-sustained inflation, but I think people will react like it is, and they'll start thinking that, you know, oh, oh my gosh, you know, headline inflation numbers are ticking up, core inflation's already over 2%, the Fed's behind the curve, and so that brings back expectations for the Fed to need to hike again, and that's what strengthens the dollar and brings the dollar back in. And then, you know, in turn, if, if that were allowed to run, that's what would, um, you know, bring the dollar up considerably, kill those inflation expectations, crash the energy market again, along with other commodity prices, and, and could usher in this big kind of global reset, especially if the Redmond B were to go. But what's interesting about this is, well, now the Fed's talking about you know, inserting this idea of, well, we could raise our inflation targets. If we could, we could basically tell the market, listen, we're going to let inflation, the, the economy overheat, we're going to let inflation drift higher. And I don't see how CPI gets to four and stays at four. It pops and it's transitory and then it'll go back down. And I don't even think it would be that high. So the rationale is, you know, if they were to introduce something like that, it would be a decidedly kind of, weak dollar policy. So I think they're able, at least in for an interim period, to cap the dollar and bring it down substantially. But they're going to have to do a lot of things that frankly end up being crazy a little longer term. It's tough. Yeah. And then, of course, that's looking somewhat sort of domestically in the US. And if we look at what's going on in Europe, and then, you know, you mentioned the Romanumbi in China, you know, any of these things can act as an accelerant. Yeah. Which, which can come seemingly left field, right? I mean, one of the things in Europe that has been interesting to watch, because I think the euro is, you know, that's toast. It's just a matter of how long that takes and how that manifests itself. You know, we're seeing now massive problems with Italy's banking sector. And given that we're coming out of the back of Brexit, I just, I don't see how the, I don't see how the European Union are going to actually hold to their mandates and say, you know what, Italy, you can't recap this banking system. You're going to have to just do bail-ins because the political rhetoric out of Italy seems to be that we want a bailout, right? We don't, because it's politically difficult to to do a bail-in and they'd much rather that, um, you know, yeah. European taxpayers essentially foot the bill. And I think that, they could have probably gotten away, the EU could have probably gotten away with holding steady and saying, you know what, fix your own problems if we hadn't come out of the bank of Brexit. Now there's this, this concern that the EU gets further weakened. Mm-hmm. If Italy you know, says, well, screw you, we're just going um, to do what we're going to do, and they turn around and go, well, that, that breaks the mandate, and then they essentially have to that's just not a good look right now for the EU. Um, and I think that it can then, you know, other countries that have just struggled as well under this one currency might look at it and go, you know what, that we're going to take do that as well. We're just we're going to get out. I think that's going to happen regardless. It's just how that sort of flows through. But so I think what the EU are likely to do is is to cave. They're going to they're going to cave and 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 help help bail them out. But then that just weakens the entire structure and the whole perception behind it is, is also weakened. Well, um, I mean, that's the thing. It's, and I didn't even think about this. Are we actually recording it? Um, I hit record and then I'll just... <laughs> 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 we just Whatever. started talking. Yeah. It's, it's, 
it's, it, we end up we end up getting on some really cool stuff. Um, so the the eurozone is capital flight out of the eurozone appears to be structural right now. You know, um, you have negative interest rates policies, which are just further uh, destabilizing the banking system. You know, if you, you have like a trillion dollars of non-performing loans that we know of, at least according to Linklater's. Um, on you know European bank balance sheets, and uh, and that was already a big issue. And the way you deal with that instability is by taxing the banks. Uh, it's a little you know ludicrous. And and I know that there's one German kind of co-op bank that's planning to pass that on. I think next month uh, to their customers. We'll see how that goes. Um, but you know there's there's a lot of reasons for people to start kind of fleeing those negative rates in anticipation of it getting crammed down their throats even more. Um, and, and, you know, so naturally there, there's a lot of people kind of reaching for higher yields and, and, uh, and some of the currency hedging dynamics, I think, affect where that money goes. Like for example, right now, you know, the 10 year treasury, you're really not getting much profit if you insist on, on currency hedging, you know, mm -hmm. if you're, you know, in Europe and you're buying, uh, if you're buying treasuries and you're hedging your dollar exposure. Um, so you basically have to decide, do I want to you know, stop hedging and just take the currency exposure? Or do I want to look somewhere else? I think that's a big part of what's driving the the demand for emerging market bonds and and equities to some extent right now. Um, but I think it's going to evolve. And 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 you know the the bigger thing you bring up with with your zone is you know after uh, and really the EU as a whole after Brexit, um, you know we we're now focusing on on the Italians and how does this kind of agreement hold. You know, how are they going to be allowed to deal with the banks? What's that going to look like? I mean, this could very likely be the end, the beginning of the end of the Eurozone and the beginning of the end of the EU as a whole. Or it could be the beginning of some evolution that actually makes it more coherent, you know, where it holds together, where it becomes something more lasting. I mean, I've, I've always, since like 2007, 2008, I've always leaned toward you know, it, the EU disintegrating, and I continue to be surprised by how long it's lasted. But I mean, I agree with you. If it's very conceivable that it gets worse and that it crumbles, and that money just keeps pouring out of there, um, that's a potential big dollar catalyst. And I mean, frankly, you see the same thing in in Japan in some ways. And and then the fact that China is losing control of their uh, of their um, exchange rate because their ability to manage it is just steadily falling and capital controls have failed. I mean, there's a lot of big dollar catalysts. In fact, if the dollar is going to rise meaningfully, I think those are the things that has to drive it. Yep. Fed policy yep. just kind of supports it and allows it unless they take this really distinctive weak dollar shift, which would maybe only take away some of that dollar upside. You know, the way, that the way that I look at it with, if you let's separate out financial participants yeah and then call them citizens right people who are not just joe six-pack goes to work nine to five maybe he's got a pension but he's not participating in the stock market he's not he doesn't even know what hedging is right yeah so if in the financial market much of what's taking place is known so yes, the central banks are coming out with all sorts of crazy screwed up policies, but they've been doing that now for like <laughs> a long time. And so each new initiative that they bring out is, is not so unexpected anymore. What you've got, so like, again, if Italy 
decided to do a bailout and the EU caved and, and, and it all went through, I don't think the financial market would be that surprised by that. What I'm kind of focusing on is that behavioral psychology at a social dissatisfaction level, if you will. So like if I think about Brexit, you know, if you had just the financial participants in Britain that were going to vote on that, I think they all would have voted remain. That, that seems to be the consensus. And that was certainly what was the expectation. But it wasn't down to them. It was down to Joe Sixpack, right, who doesn't understand financial matters, right? He's a plumber, electrician, whatever it is, right? And they decided enough is enough. And I think when you look across Europe, you've got this increasing social dissatisfaction. And it's not just, so you've got the financial side, which has been, you know, people's incomes. Um, and I, I remember pulling up some data on this. For the last 20 years, the middle class has been falling. And that's been in the US and it's also been across Europe. Sure enough. And so it's one of those situations where when you have less to lose, you're prepared to take greater risks. I think and, there's a, a really important difference here, though. There's kind of a wrinkle in the calculation is that I think that logic is true, assuming that you're dealing with a young or even a middle-aged person. If you're talking about someone who's older, the way that they go through that kind of the reaction function is different. So the graying of these societies, yeah, mm -hmm. you have the middle class being hollowed out, but you have, you know, the other situation where, you know, old men don't throw stones. You typically don't see old people out in the streets rioting. You know, you typically don't see these really aggressive movements. And yet what was interesting about Brexit is that, you know, you did have older voters pushing some of it through, which tells me I think that there's more driving it. Um, well, I the, think that it has more to do with the refugee crisis, with yes, race issues, and you put that in there, and then it's really unpredictable. It's no, that's, that's, you make a fantastic point. So, you, and, you, you know, you're very correct in terms of the graying of society, but if the way that I think about it, so you've got that risk attitude. That's what I'm sort of talking about. And yes, if you're, you're a 60-year-old pensioner, you, you're not predisposed to risk in the same sort of way. That said, what, what a graying society is looking for is they're looking for stability and they're looking yeah. for security. And so that's where that whole refugee, terrorism, all of those aspects come into this. And if you look at the status quo, you're going, you know what? Normally, I'd vote for the status quo, but this status quo is really worrying me. And I think yeah. that's why you're seeing this rise of the, the right wing. Like, so we saw in Austria where the, the right wing party, I think it was 10 years prior, had 7% of the vote. And they just came out and they got 49 point something percent. Like within, it was under a decade, these guys managed to get a huge uprun. And, and, and you know, Austria is not alone in this. You know, if I'm going to make a bet and say who's going to take France next year, it's like it's probably Le Pen. I mean, I hate to say it, but... Her chances are not bad. She's no. Um, there's that dissatisfaction. Um, and what I'm, what I'm suggesting is that people are looking at the status quo and they're saying, you know what, I don't really know exactly 
what this other party is going to offer. It's a little bit out there, but it feels like I'm prepared to take that that risk. I'm prepared to take that dive. It's a it's the same phenomenon as the, as Trump. People are just saying, you know, we just had enough of the status quo. We don't really know what Trump's going to bring, but we can see what looks like he's very different to well, anything that's preceded him, and therefore. Kind of step back though and look at that emotion, right? And I actually think this is really big because most most people that I hear talking about the macro outlook right now are missing some really big, really important long-term trends. Um, and when you just look at the emotions of this, so you know you have you know graying of society that normally would be kind of holding this back, but you you don't just have kind of the financial and economic erosion. Of, of these societies, but but it's something um, it's something more threatening with you know the rise of extremism, the rise of of nationalism, and and kind of the, the interplay um, with with um, either extremist groups and the rest of the population, uh, with extremists from different camps, for example, um, like ISIS, which is filtered in, in filtered into Europe. And, and kind of your hardcore um, white supremacist nationalists both playing off of each other on the extreme. So it's, it's different in my mind because rather than, you know, that mentality of, of saying like, fuck it, I don't have that much to lose. You know, the economics are, are, are getting worse. It's now like this, we're under attack. We're not yes. safe. When Trump starts running, he goes from make America great again to make America safe again. Yes. Yes. It's, so come back to those. I'm just going to butt in here because this no, is, you're, you're completely nailed it. So like you think about their growing society, they're looking for security. Okay. So 20 years ago, security wasn't to be found in some right wing national today. They're increasingly looking at it going, you know what? We're under threat. We're under attack. And these are the only guys who seem to have an answer to that. And as such, I'm looking for that security. They're the ones, it, it's a little bit like how Churchill came to power, right? Guy was a bit of a lunatic, but at the right time, that's exactly what everybody wanted. They were like, we need a guy like him, right? Think about, think, you just made, I mean, you literally just brought this exactly where I wanted to go. Um, think about what that meant for the structure of society, the relationship between government and the market, and kind of the bigger global geopolitical structure. Um, you know, with people like Churchill came to power, I mean, what you did is you, you, you mobilized um, the country, you won the war, thank goodness, but you came out on the other side with distinct state capitalism, where the state was playing this active role in almost every market. Um, and now, you know, we're, we're definitely coming back in, not just with overregulation, but also with the state really tinkering and distorting how capital gets allocated. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're in a position where you're just trying to preserve your wealth, you've got to put money to work because you can't hold it in cash when you know they're going to keep eroding the value real right now, but maybe nominal later with negative interest rates and cashless society and that whole push. So you have to put it to work. But how do you put money to work when, when you don't know the price of anything? How do you know it's going to be productive? So there, there, the, I think that there is a breakdown happening. As you get this preference for safety, you get more nationalism within this global 
context and and that was you know stage the stage was set by for that by all of these these reckless central bank policies that disincentivize meaningful investment and and you know uh, new technology that's coming in that i think is breaking down globalization you get a a less ordered world you get a world where i think i think uh you know, trade starts breaking down because you have 3D printing and robotics and automation that can do it close to the consumer at home. You break growth models for another number of emerging market economies where they simply don't work anymore. You have, you basically have, um, have a fracturing uh, of this globalized world into, into different regions and countries trying to figure out how they fit within it. And you have these governments which, which in many cases may be clashing with one another that are basically sitting over their spheres of influence. I mean, it's a new Cold War. It's, it's fascinating because if you think about some of the rhetoric coming out from the political parties, it's interventionist and yeah. it's protectionist. It's like, hey, they're taking, the Mexicans are taking our jobs. Yeah, when the robots and, will take them time anyway. Exact, and, and, and technology transcends borders with. So you can shut your borders and kick all the Mexicans out, right? Or the, the Europeans can shut their borders and kick all the Eastern Europeans out or it doesn't really matter where you are in the world. Take your pick. You can have that take place. But as you mentioned, technology is replacing many of those menial types of roles anyways. And technology transcends those borders because I can go out and buy myself a 3D printer that can print me a coffee cup or whatever it is that I want to have, you know, printed. Sure, that's a bit of cost prohibitive at this point in time, but we're getting there and we're getting there very, very quickly. It dovetails also into China, emerging markets. The way that China managed to pull itself <clears throat> out of poverty has been selling their goods to the Americans. That, that US consumer now is both on a demographic tail end and financially, if you look at like the millennials or Gen X, these guys are all broke. I mean, Gen X are broke. And I don't think most people realize that that's the case because remember, you know, most of those guys were investing their capital in 05, 06. Most Joe Six Packs put their money into real estate for a home to live in. And they're still, they're still underwater, even if they held their homes, right? So, you know, the wealth that they should have generated over the last 10, 15 years is just not there. So the consumption habits that come out of the back of that are, are going to be, I think, quite disappointing. So, so, you know, what that means to a place like China is that, you know, the engine of consumption growth is no longer where it used to be. You then throw in technology to that and it gets quite concerning as to how it's going to play out in some of these emerging markets who have an economic structure that is essentially built around menial production, if you will. Well, that's what's really interesting. Like, if you look at China's example, you know, 2007, 2008, you saw, um, you saw a collapse in trade demand from the, from the developed world. And, you know, it left, um, it left kind of the state of, of global trade demand in, in a really bad place. And so what China did was embark on a massive monetary, fiscal, and credit stimulus um, push to, to stabilize their growth at first, and then to to basically um, to basically work through some of the big transitions, make some of the big investments that, that they know they needed to make anyway, and so they're kind of building their economy for that next stage of growth. They're investing in it early. 
and, and thinking that, okay, we can do this and then trade will come back over time and we'll be fine. The problem is trade demand didn't come back and they just kept investing, kept mobilizing credit and it hasn't worked. It's, it's resulted in this massive bubble built up uh, for a, a Chinese economy that assumed that basically you stayed with the same way the world worked before the, the crisis, um, that it would just come back. And it's not, it's changing. And it's, it's taking the U.S. consumer longer to heal, like you're saying. I still think that we're the major organic engine of real demand in the world. Um, I still think that's that's you know the the U.S. number one, probably the Euro area. You know, number two, there is a lot of wealth still there, um, and and those areas have just haven't been doing well. By the time you get any kind of real recovery in the U.S. Um, and consumers' ability to spend, now you've dramatically changed that with inequality. So it's going to be the the wealthier, higher earning consumers, and there's less of us. But by the time that comes back it's more likely that we're going to be buying those products, the products that would be coming from China. It's going to be made by 3D printer. You'll so be buying them from, from manufacturing in Detroit done by robots. Yeah. Even, I mean, hell, even if it comes from Detroit, it might, you know, it might come you know, down the street from the Amazon facility here in, in, in Houston. I mean, I saw something the other day that was really striking. Um, e-commerce in the United States, rather than just, you know, Amazon having one big warehouse or, or maybe even two warehouses on each side of the on each side of the country, what they're doing is they're localizing. They're building out warehouse and distribution facilities near major urban areas. And I think that's absolutely fascinating. Um, they're, they're cutting their delivery times so consumers are more likely to buy because they get their things cheaper and, and they cut the transportation costs. But what they're doing in the process of it is basically building out this distribution network that is very friendly when the technology, you know, yeah. suits it to put robotics and 3D printing in or near those facilities to be able to bring the manufacturing back where the distribution is, the distribution network's already built. It's fascinating because it's basically what technology's done time and again. It just tends to continuously decentralize systems, right? And so, yeah. you, know, you and I, you know, you're sitting in Houston, I'm sitting in, um, you know, Beach in New Zealand. I do, you know, the vast majority of my business from a home office, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I, it, it's irrelevant if I'm sitting in Singapore or Hong Kong or in LA, it doesn't make any real difference other than time zones. So, and that you go, okay, well, that's, you know, financial um, world and you um, it, it's easy to do that. You're not dealing with physical products, but now we are dealing with physical products and that entire decentralization you just talked about, it, it changes the whole logistical supply chain. Everything. And I think that's really important. So what you just mentioned there, you know, think of the knock on effects of that. What does that mean to long distance trucking? What does oh, it yeah, Absolutely. Especially in a world where you have driverless cars too. So, <laughs> To yeah. the extent those are done, jobs aren't necessarily there. Yeah, I mean, I watched, it was an interview with, um, that Grant did with Gunlack on Real Vision TV, and he's talking about the fact that he didn't expect driverless cars kind of anytime soon. He may be correct. That being said, in Europe, about two months ago, they just trialed a whole fleet of trucks. They drove across the entire Europe, you know, without any human intervention. And so 
I'm not convinced that he's right. I think it, it, it has the potential to come into emerging markets probably more swiftly than developed markets. If you think about how difficult it is to get anything done in developed markets today where you've got so much red tape and regulation, right? But I've, I've grown up and I've lived in you know, multiple countries, some of which are third world countries. And if you want to drive down a multi-lane highway in Philippines or in Thailand on a Harley Davidson without a helmet on and six kids standing on your shoulders, you can do it. And people do, right? So are they going to really be that concerned about a driverless car? I don't, I don't see the same red tape and regulation. There's well, red tape and regulation only in terms of graft, in terms of how much tea money do I give you to get this product on the street? I think that's going to be, this is fair, tell me what you think. I, I think that dynamic is, is going to be more of a problem in emerging markets because I think they're going to be, I think they're going to recognize over time how threatened their growth models are. I mean, you're basically talking about economies with low amounts of accumulated wealth relative to a lot of the rest of the developed world who have been, you know, their whole economy has been growing based on exports and foreign capital coming in, you know, to, to put kind of older technologies to work and scale it around the world. And you're reaching the natural limits of both of those things. And, and uh, you know, the, 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 the demand for a lot of the goods that have, you know, been made in those countries historically, that's, that's maybe coming back over time, but maybe in a very different way. Um, and, and it's going to be produced in a very different way. So their growth models break down pretty dramatically. And I think there's going to be issues there. But, but the same thing here, I mean, this is maybe the, the, the more interesting conversation. I mean, if, if, tell me if this sounds nuts, but um, there are a lot of people that I talk to who want to forecast what all of these trends mean on their own, and they want to take it to the full extent of what, of what they would naturally do in markets. And what I'm trying to say is I think we're shifting into a global environment where markets, uh, free markets, um, are, are really not the driving force for how capital gets allocated or how things work, where government exerts a much more active place in that. And there has to be a, we know there has to be a restructuring of social contracts, both here and, and in emerging markets in different places. But I think there's going to be this, basically, this negotiation um, of, you know, how are these how are these technologies going to get adopted in society? Are they going to be blocked so that we miss out on the productivity gains that come from it? That can happen in some places. Are they going to be adopted and then that displaces a huge number of, of, of workers? Yeah, so... That can happen in other... It's, it's, the, it's that conversation and that question of, okay, well, what does this actually look like in a world where government plays a bigger role and people are demanding change by ballot or by bullet? You nailed it, Worth. That's a, a question I've been thinking a lot about myself. So my, if I was going to have a crack at, at guessing what that might look like, in the developed world, I would think that you would have increased government intervention, but not necessarily in blocking it, but in taking a slice of it. So, and then redistributing the share of gains from it. So, for example, if you can have robotics moving in and building all of the cars in Detroit, then those companies that are utilizing those robotics would have a, a certain type of tax that's, that's placed on them. And then the displaced workers would be theoretically compensated accordingly and help to you know, find new jobs and so on and so forth. I think that that would be in 
in the current environment, it would be the most politically feasible thing to do. Because if you came out and you just blocked technology, then it's, especially in America, you suddenly put this, this halt on one of the, the biggest engines of growth that the U.S. has had in the last 20 years, right? Yeah. And so... Well, what you really get down to is you have to recognize that the technology is moving forward and someone's going to adopt it. So if it's not us, it'll be somewhere else in the world. Yeah. They'll capture much higher growth potential. And look, it's too early to say, but that was the same dynamic by which the U.S. kind of took off as the rest of the world you know, continued to stay at relatively low living standards. That, that great... Uh, that great divergence that you know Neil Ferguson talks about, yep. where the U.S. harnessed the Industrial Revolution and and became extremely wealthy. I mean, this is the same thing. So, are we going to allow ourselves to be left behind, um, or at least to 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 come through more slowly? Like much of Western Europe followed, but it took a little more time, and they didn't become as wealthy. And this is what's interesting. Everyone thinks about demographics as being this huge drag on growth and growth potential. But what if it's the other way around? What if, and, 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 and this is not a proven concept, I'm thinking about it a lot, what if um, it actually having low workforce to population ratio actually becomes an economic asset in that you have fewer workers getting displaced by technology, like in Japan, Mm -hmm. There's not much pushback because unemployment's very low. You have so many people falling out of the labor force that in that kind of environment, they don't have the resistance to really employing a lot of this technology. They're a train wreck right now, especially from a debt perspective. But what if over time, Japan is able to reap the rewards of a lot of this technology in ways that the U.S. and Europe can't? Are, are they in position to become one of the wealthiest economies on the planet? It's possible. If they can defend themselves. It's in order for that to take place, we'd need to see an accelerated adoption of technology in a hurry, really. Right. Yeah. So, or maybe um, they work through a disaster and they do it on the other end. Yeah, true. But in order for that to take place, you need to have the political groundwork laid for it where it's, where it's the wheels are greased for that to take place. And so like, if I, you go back to say the US, I think it's very politically feasible to be able to come out and say, you know what, we're going to really adopt this, but there's a tax or whatever that's taking place. Because if you think about, let's just say the millennials, for example, again, you've got a, an entire sec- sector of the populace that are not particularly well off, but then there's the 1% of them, like the Zuckerbergs who go and make billions, you know, they, they create something and they become phenomenally wealthy. And the other guys are sort of looking around going, I'd love a slice of that, but how do I do it? And so it's quite politically feasible to be able to go out and say, you know what, the guys who do you know, generate these massive gains, we want them on, we need them and we want them. But in order for society to you know, sustain itself, we need to have basically a lot more socialism. And Here's the thing with that. That every everyone talks about this as if um, socialist economies they can't possibly work and they fail. But they, they you know the conversation when I hear this comes up, it's like they immediately fail, but they don't. I mean, look at China, look at the USSR. These systems can hold together for a very long time, especially if you have a big you know productive surge in in you know robotics, for example. If you're taxing it but letting the new technology go to work, 
Yeah, look, what, it's, what it's you end just up having neat. is a less efficient economy, but it drags out sure. for 30, 40, 50 it's years. Net, it's net margins worth. So like, if yeah. you have a socialist structure which is net negative, then sure, it's just going to accelerate the decline. But as long as it's net positive, yeah, it has sustainability. So like, if you look at um, Denmark, Sweden, all these, these are Norway, very socialist yeah. countries. But, you know, Norway up until recently in the oil dive, it's, it's had that sustainability, right? And so long as it's net positive, that can just keep going. And you might not like the social structure or whatever it is. It doesn't really matter. It's just like any other business. If, you, you know, if you're making more than, you, than your expenses, you can keep going. And so if, if a socialist structure has that in place, then, yeah, it, I don't see how it, it doesn't, so it doesn't automatically the, collapse. This is the kind of world that I'm kind of preparing to invest in and trying to wrap my head around a lot, you know. Um. As mentioned before, I've broken this conversation into two parts due to its length. And in part two, we discuss what Worth is looking at right now, as amongst many other things. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation thus far and please tune in next week when I'll publish part two of my extended conversation with Worth Ray. Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to capitalistexploits.at.